Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. Valued at approximately $6 billion, or less than half of a percent of the aggregate value of fine art, digital art on the blockchain has an enormous runway for growth. On-chain digital art already accounts for 10% of high net worth collectors spending on art, and it is now being recognized at marquee cultural institutions in the world, such as Centre Pompidou in Paris or the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Recorded on a global, public, and tamper-proof database that can be queried at any time, on-chain digital art ensures transparency for provenance and price discovery never possible before the advent of the blockchain. In addition, Web3 is redistributing value among key participants, be it the brands, creators, and patrons, and bypassing centralized gatekeepers. Critics will point to collapsing transaction volumes for digital collectibles such as PFPs on marketplaces like OpenSea or Blur as a sign of fading appetite. But that would be missing the bigger picture. First and foremost, on-chain digital art ultimately spans far beyond PFPs. Secondly, the truth about art economics is that art is heavily influenced by what is not or won't ever be for sale. You might think you can access the whole art supply at any given moment, but in reality, there is a vast collection of art that has not, cannot, or will never ever enter the market. And it exerts an economic influence on the art visible to all of us. In fact, art holds a contingent value based on its cultural appeal. The perception of ownership and collecting such an item adds a cachet level to the owner's reputation and importance, making this asset class both exclusive to their owners and contributing to their societal perception. My guest today, Jean-Michel Payon, co-founder of Grail Capital, is a firm believer that digital art will be an integral part of investment portfolios, and that as awareness grows, more Gen Z and millennials will choose digital art as exposure to the culture in which they grow up. Younger generations are already spending three times more than their parents on digital art, and history is full of examples of subcultures which became dominant decades later. A former executive at Ledger and co-founder of NFT Factory Paris, Jean-Michel has been a prominent art collector since the early 2000s. But he is also an accomplished fintech and capital markets ecosystem expert, having spent close to a decade at NYC Paris, where he oversaw the IPO process of nearly 400 companies. Suffice to say, he knows a thing or two about asset origination, pricing, and market cycles. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I've been lucky enough to grow over many places when I was young because my parents were changing job quite often, and therefore I probably did something like six calls between eight and fifteen, and then I settled down a little bit. But so I moved a lot within France again for those years. And basically, at the time, I must say, I was a relatively introvert and shy guy, and I was a, a lonely child. So basically, I was mostly reading. I was already drawing and painting a little bit, even though I was not a great talent on that. I was doing a little bit of sport as well, tennis and soccer mostly, and basically really changed my life was the day during the fall 1994 when I discovered internet. And that's probably what has changed my life forever because I, even though it was relatively crappy at the time and, you know, very slow and, and not so great and not as efficient as, as we are doing today, I must say that I really felt intrigued by that and having the power to see something from France of someone who wrote something in another country was like really 
smashing for me. And basically that triggered my attention. And as from then, I started like doing internet somehow. So was there a particular, did you get your first laptop or computer? Or was there like a trigger? Or how did you discover the internet? So the internet, the funny story is that I, at the time it was, didn't have a PC myself. I had some friends who had, and actually most of the time, the kind of PC you had was a, an Amstrad or, or things like that. And it was mostly to play games, to play video games. And actually this discovery of internet was at a friend's house. And so it was not my PC. And actually at the time, generally speaking, having a PC or a laptop was actually quite expensive and I couldn't afford that. And so I was lucky enough to be at the university at some point. And basically, I mostly used internet at the university for many years until the point where I could afford to buy my first PC and my first access to internet. But it took me some years to get there. You know, it's interesting. I could totally relate. So I was born in a computer science household. So I was exposed. Actually, I had the first Amstrad with a hard drive. And this is in the 80s, right? Dates me. And at the time, though, the game set on PCs was much more narrow than it would be on Apple. And so one of the reasons I started coding at an early age was that I didn't have any games. So I had to use the computer to do something. And so my dad had those big books. One was Pascal, the other was basic. And so I taught myself in order to write a program that would have a, a skateboarder like roll down the, the street and ollie over obstacles and things like that. And then it's interesting that you mentioned 1994 because I then went through hiatus, like maybe as a teenager, like rebelling against sort of my dad and not wanting anything to do with computers. But then in 1994, he walks into my room and basically gives me a brand new laptop with internet connectivity and then sat me down and basically whiteboarded how the internet works. He says, there's this thing called the internet and it's going to be huge. And so I want you to learn about it. And so I know you don't want to listen to me right now, but just sit down, hear me out. Just this, and I remember my mind being blown. And it was literally in 1994. So that's funny. What kind of studies did you pursue? And you know, I, I know the French system. I went to a French high school, so I'm familiar with that. But were there specific topics that you gravitated towards more than others, that you enjoyed more than others? Yeah, the funny story is that because at a young age, I used to travel a lot for my parents' job. And when I was when it was the time to go to university, I started going to a French university and I was studying kind of mechanical engineering, I would say. And then because I had this kind of thing in my mind that said to me that I had to travel, I basically did a student exchange with a UK university because of this French university kind of partnership. And I ended up being in a UK university for three years and doing a Bachelor of Science there in industrial design. And again, that was good learning. I was I, honestly at the time I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, and basically I would probably have ended up working for a company in the automotive industry. Even I remember that I received an offer when I was graduated by this big shipping company that are worldwide leaders. And voila! But so I, it took me some times, and I ended up coming back to France for personal reasons, I would say, and. I ended up my kind of curriculum, academic curriculum with a, a finance master, basically. And again, the choice of doing finance was mostly because it was an intriguing industry for me. I didn't have anybody in my family who did finance. It seems to be at the time some kind of place where you would learn a lot and with relatively small people around you. So I decided 
to graduate in finance. And then I started working actually, and my career started in finance for, for quite some years. So if you think about the initial motivations in your, the early stages of your career, what were the main drivers and motivators? Were you equally driven by accumulating and building a knowledge base? You know, when, when you interacted before, what I've noticed is you were very specific about some of the technicals of what you were involved with at an early age in your career that are now all coming together in what you're doing. Was money also a big motivation? I mean, was that a motivator in your career moves? Not at all. And actually, that's probably my mistake. When I was very young, when I started my career, basically, I suspected that I, know, that I knew almost nothing. And I knew that I wanted to learn and that I wanted to learn from the best. And working with, in the finance was a good way to understand how the economics, how the economy is working and how a company is working. And I wanted to understand, you know, the broader world. So finance was the right place to work on that. I wanted to understand finance with a capital F as well. So instead of working in a bank or an asset management firm or, or whatever, I decided to work in the exchange industry which is like the stock exchange, basically. So I ended up working in the Paris Stock Exchange to start with, or what is now called Euronext. And then years after, I had the chance to work for the New York Stock Exchange, which was the kind of the grail of the career when you work in the industry of exchanges. And again, that was because I was learning a lot. I had the chance to see many, many things because exchange is interconnected to everything. So everything, whether it's a central bank, a private bank, an asset manager, an hedge fund, everybody in the finance, is somehow connected to an exchange. And basically, that was a good way for me to understand finance. I would have probably done much better from a financial standpoint if I decided to join, like some of my friends, some kind of investment banks in the first years. And probably that, that, that that's okay. Actually, I, I wanted to learn and I learned a lot. And that's probably one of the key elements of my whole life is that I'm a kind of constant learner and I'm trying to be smarter every day. And, and voila. So... Working at within exchanges and understanding market microstructure, can you tell us a little bit, those formative years, what you understood? What was the knowledge that you glean from being really at the intersection of where liquidity gets created and where securities are traded and value really is exchanged? Oh, my God. It could be a book, you know? <laughs> I don't know how much time we get, but I think I will try to summarize it. But to make it super simple, the kind of thing I, there are good and bad things that I discovered during those years. I will start with the bad thing and I will end up with the good thing. Among the bad thing, I discovered a lot of things that was happening beyond the curtain and how centralized finance is somehow broken, where you have some government intervention, where you have some kind of central bank that are flooding the market with money or sometimes doing some very complex, very complex strategy with regard to certain assets. So just, and I guess that's, it's a known fact, so I'm not saying something that is not known, but the gold market is totally manipulated by the central banks. And I know for a fact because in 2004, Euronext stopped to manage basically the gold market, the French gold market. And basically, I had to study at the time what was happening in the London Metal Exchange, uh, which was dealing with the gold market in the UK. And it was very strange what was happening there regarding the inventory, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I discovered very bad thing regarding finance that I don't really like. That actually probably was one of the reasons why I decided to leave at some point. At the same time, I discovered the, the global interconnection between everything that is macro and micro. 
why when something happens on a certain market, like the interest rate market, has an implication on the interbank market and then eventually have a big impact on the foreign exchange market and that has an impact on the stock market. And so I had been lucky enough to see it live, I would say, to sometimes see the signal one day ahead and therefore being able to understand what would happen the next day. And also probably one of the climax of my time there was really in 2008, in September 2008, just at the moment of the Lehman Brothers collapse, I would say, because as an exchange, we had a lot of information ahead of everybody because we knew that there was a systemic risk if Lehman would go down and therefore there was a lot of information we got before the actual bankruptcy being informed. And I remember that, that day very well because that's the only day in my life that I saw people within the company that were running in the offices because they were not quite sure if it would go fine, basically. So yeah, so I learned a lot, did a lot. I was relatively discreet. I was obviously not part of the super senior level management of, of NYC. So I was kind of the, the little guy that is in a meeting that is hearing and that is not talking too much, but I was lucky enough to see and, and understand a lot of things. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, again, to your point, I mean, books can be written about these market events. I know as a former trader and portfolio manager and, and still someone who watches markets pretty actively, but especially when you're glued or you're in a business where, to your point, you see the flow, you see the tape, those phases, those market regimes are ingrained. Like I vividly remember when I was when the plane got shut down in 2014 over Ukraine, right? I remember what was happening when the U.S. was downgraded, right, in 2011, and specifically what happened during that week down to like flashes of images. So it's interesting how our life becomes intertwined with the ebbs and flows of financial markets, especially if we work in that, that industry. And also learning about the institutional makeup of how ultimately, I was having this conversation with a friend earlier today, a lot of with the financial industry and, and the professionals within the industry are A, very talented, but also responsible for a lot of risk. And in some ways, the backstop of the government tolerates that there is an industry that accrues a lot of rent to maintain a lot of financial and economic stability, right? And it takes skills to affect that. But it also is, in some corners, heavily manipulated. And I think the level of manipulation, and this is relevant for, I think, what people are finding out in a much more prominent manner over the years, is that level of manipulation has actually increased over the last 15 years, especially since 08, which creates interesting tailwinds for digital assets and crypto in general. But we'll get back to that. Were there any specific setbacks in the career prior to moving on to digital assets or were there any stumbling along the way? No, no, totally. Actually, that's funny because, you know, that's probably the reason why I'm there today, actually. I could have comfortably stayed in this traditional financial world if I had pursued the career I should have done because it, it's a relatively slow industry. You know, the exchange industry is not as fast as the hedge fund or the investment banking world. So basically... Usually, when you enter in that kind of industry, there is a kind of career path that leads you to a certain level of management and then to the ultimate level of management after 20 or 24 years. And therefore, it was funny because I remember hearing people telling, oh, Jean-Michel, five years from now, you will be there or that, you will manage this or that. And that's interesting. But at some point, basically, there was, I was part of Euronext and then Euronext merged 
uh, New York Stock Exchange in 2006 and 7. And therefore, NYSEO next uh, last for some years. And in 13, 2013, the group was acquired by ICE, Intercontinental Exchange. And basically, ICE decided to demerge NYC on one side, LIFE, which was the derivative exchange in London, on the other side. And Euronext was basically spun off from the NYC, Euronext group. And therefore, at the time of this demerger, I was kind of part of the people who could eventually be part of the management of the new Euronext, I would say. And uh, that's just basically, it's uh, like uh, every time there is some competition and I basically lost that competition. And I was not part of the management of this new company. And so I, that's when I decided to actually leave the company because I didn't want to wait five or 10 years to get to that point again. So I said, okay, well, I've lost. So now I need to do something else. And that's around 2014 and 15. And that's when I left the exchange industry to work actually in fintech. And fintech led me to blockchain, Bitcoin, and crypto. So actually, that's thanks to that setback in my career somehow that I moved into this new industry. So I'm thankful for, for this miss in my career, I would say. Well, you know what they say, right? They say, I mean, thinking about it, you really, quote unquote, lost within a set of parameters in it within a specific game, right? And so they say, if, if you want to turn the tables, change the game, redefine the parameters, which is what you did, right? And one can argue you're probably on a trajectory and a path that's probably more fulfilling and ultimately will yield to even more success along the way. So how do you suddenly get involved with Ledger and, and what was the progression there? Like, did you know the founders? Did you get hired at an early stage? Like, what was the story there? That's an amazing story, actually. So again, going back to what we just said, I left 14, 15 and and basically, as from 14, I knew that I would do something else. So I had a, a bit of time to find my new gig and my new business, basically. And, and I was, again, very curious because curiosity is probably my key quality, I would say. And being curious led me to get an interest for Bitcoin, probably as from 13. I probably heard about Bitcoin before, but I didn't have the time because I, I had a family, I had a work that was quite demanding, and therefore I didn't have so much time. But in 13, I started reading a lot about Bitcoin. And because, again, I was a kind of dual background of engineering on one side and financial on the other side, I was kind of intrigued by both the technology, the famous blockchain technology, but also by the monetary supply with the 25, 21, 24, 21 million three maximum number of Bitcoin. And that was kind of very intriguing to me. And I started reading a lot again. And, and in 14, basically, what happened is that in, in May 14, I was back in Paris by then. And, and there is a place opening in Paris that is called the House of Bitcoin, La Maison du Bitcoin in French. And that place is opened by two guys who happen eventually to create Ledger a few months after. So we start interacting together. I would say that we were not friends per se, but we were kind of business friends. So meeting quite regularly, we were discussing about Bitcoin, about finance, about how this interesting little market could become someday bigger. Even invested together in, in the same company that, that was a startup that obviously miserably failed because it was too early. And so we knew each other quite well, I would say. And I started advising them a little bit. So we are, we are now like in 15, 16. And one thing leading to the other, Ledger was a relatively small company by then. I think there were just 15 people max at the time. And, and basically, Eric, the CEO at the time, asked me to join them, late 16, I think, to basically to do everything that is non-technical, 
that is mostly uh, creating the support function, so finance on one side, you know, legal on the other side, HR, and even you know a couple of other things within the company. And they basically need this kind of profile of a jack of all trades and with a strong financial background. And basically, that was me that did that for the first couple of years. And then the company grew a lot. And my role evolved a lot within the group that moved from probably 15 employees when I joined to 850 when I left end of Jan this year. So yeah, that has been an amazing journey. And that's really, again, curiosity and serendipity that led me to be there. Yeah, I mean, unless you put yourself out there and you're proactive in manifesting what you, you want to do, it just will never happen, right? And so you just have to be authentic about your passions, what you're looking to do, and people latch onto it. There's a certain energy that emanates from those phases. So how do you get first acquainted with digital art, with, which is, I think, the, the, the main topic here and what you're really involved with now on a day-to-day basis? What is the story there? Well, uh, digital art, I, you will love, but probably my first connection with digital art was with Paintbrush, again in 1994 at university. That was my first time that I see, hey, you can create art with a computer and a mouse. Joke aside, I mean, that's probably the beginning of everything. And years forward after that, obviously, I was very much, when I started collecting art, probably as from 2000, 2001, there was a lot of art that was called kind of computer art or geek art or digital art, but in a certain way. But because it was digital in format, it was not really called art, actually, in the sense that it couldn't be scarce. And therefore, you could have a person that was a designer that was extremely talented and that could basically paint with any kind of software, a magnificent painting, digital painting. And yet it was not considered as art because you couldn't prove that there's just one and it was just a PNG file or, or something. So I had this kind of somehow frustration not to collect them, but more for them, for the creators, that they were not considered as, as artists and creators by themselves. And again, fast forward, when the NFT technology appeared, I just said, okay, it looks as if this little thing could actually change the game because all of a sudden, creators of digital media, generally speaking, and specifically digital paintings, they have a way to somehow prove the authenticity, but more importantly, the scarcity of their artwork. And therefore, they can start to sell their artwork. And therefore, because they sell, they are, and they can be considered as artists, which they were not before. So that's really this very long process from paintbrush to Photoshop through NFT, basically, that led me probably to where I am today. That's amazing. My mom's an artist, spent a lot of time surrounded with creation on the artistic side. She paints. I drew a lot as a kid. I love comic books. And I also remember those early days where I started using a scanner to scan my drawings and then coloring them and using coloring effects on the PC at the time. So I clearly and vividly remember those days and did some interesting work and just getting acquainted with that. It's really, truly fascinating. So. How did you assess the potential and the opportunity? Because now, again, you've embarked on a journey that has a financial component. There's a passion component, but you also want to make money for yourself and for your investors, right? You're helping, and we're getting to your, to the core business that you're building right now, which is allowing investors to get exposure to this new asset class, really, which is digital art. 
how did you assess the opportunity and potential beyond your own passion and interest in the topic? And actually, I will come back for a minute for where I come. And from where I come is, again, the exchange industry. And at some point, I was the head of research for the world listing business of NYC or Next. And basically, part of my job by then was actually to assess which sector, industrial sector, were the one with the, the most potential in terms of listing or trading. And obviously, it has to go with technology most of the time. So it was biotech, it was clean tech. It could have been blockchain if I stayed longer by then. And I was kind of always trying to find data points, macro data points about an industry and how this industry grows. Is it growing fast? What's the total market size of this market, of this industry? And obviously, is the listed value of this industry is similar to the one of the economy, I would say. And, um, and I kind of did the same with this digital art thing. I basically found out that the total value of contemporary and modern art is around 1.8 trillion USD right now. 1.8 trillion. So that's 1,800 billion USD. And when I look at that, I obviously then did the work with my partner who is Tim Salikoff and who happened to work for Morgan Stanley and Lazar for some years. So he's also coming from finance somehow. He's a very data geek. So he did a, an amazing search on that. And, and we ended up to the conclusion that roughly speaking, you know, if you add all the digital art and collectibles, so all the Xcopy, all the people, all the CryptoPunks, all the Bordet, Yacht Clubs, and everything that is on-chain digital art, you get a total value of roughly 6 billion. So you have on one side digital art that is valued 6 billion. You have the total contemporary and modern art that is valued 1.8 trillion. So that's basically 0.3% of the total market value, I would say. And that's very interesting because the real thing is that will it stay 0.3 or will it go somewhere else? And obviously, I think, especially when I discovered those figures, that actually 0.3 is very, very small. And I tend to believe that it can be much bigger than that. So just from a macro standpoint and a kind of market share, I tend to believe that the market share of digital art will increase substantially in the next five to 10 years. And that basically means either the art market will collapse, which I don't believe it will be doing, or the digital art market price will increase substantially. So that's basically my macro bet. And then there's a, a micro bet, which is more the bottom up. And it's a more complex and probably longer explanation, but to, to summarize it, I would say that I'm trying to build some parallels um, between certain digital artists of today and certain famous contemporary artists of the past. So I'm basically spending most of my time thinking of, okay, who is the next Andy Warhol? Who is the next? Damien Hurst, who is the next Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is the next Kissaring, etc., etc., etc. And I'm trying to build some parallels, again, with the current digital artist I know. And actually, funny enough, I started finding some parallels between all of them. And I now, have, for, for some of them, I have a precise view of how I see them becoming somehow in the art market, in a way. There's definitely almost a tribal element to it 
anthropological aspect. If you think about the Dada movement or the expressionist and how they formed those communities, and you're referring to Warhol and Velvet Underground and those gatherings at Odeon and Tribeca, you know, back in the days. And like, there's those communities that form around certain themes and there's this talent that comes together. What's really truly fascinating is in the digital space, this can happen physically, but it can also happen on a global scale on a virtual basis. And so the potential for souls and spirits to come together and create art and to create is actually the potential is actually larger when you think about it than physical art, right? Because the dimensions are by construction much greater than they are with the physical limits that existed in the past. So when I think of as a, if I take aside the art piece that I'm personally very excited about, you take the, the trade that you describe, which is essentially describing a highly asymmetric bet that if it does work out, has a tremendous amount of upside, right, for investors. And that's, I think, what I glean from this is we're at a stage where it's not about eking out even like pretty decent returns annually. It's just you're at a stage where if you get involved now and stay in, the amount of upside that exists that's built in to this imbalance that you described is substantial, right? And so I think hopefully that's what listeners are left with. So we have your initial thesis. You mentioned a co-founder. How did that come together? Like, what was the initial genesis of you guys working together? Yeah. So actually, we met with Tim, obviously, through Twitter, which is obviously the key repository place for most of the crypto and, and most of the, of the NFT people, I would say. Um, we met via Twitter for a simple reason. So I built up a kind of social presence on Twitter because of the fact that I was part of the management of Ledger and therefore I was part of the leaders and a little bit visible. I was kind of interviewed often and, and also because I used part of my public profile to also raise the profile of NFTs because I was uh, interviewed a lot for Ledger as a security company and I was always talking about NFTs and how, how big it is and how big the potential is, etc. And so basically I started having uh, more and more people following me on that were just NFT. And also because in the meantime, I started becoming a relatively active, even sometimes compulsive art collector of NFTs. And basically, Tim was a little bit younger than me in the market, but he was very analytical. And I think that he started basically studying the, uh, the wallet. What you can do, which is beautiful the NFT scene, is that as soon as you know some collectors, you can basically follow what they are acquiring, what they are collecting, which is extremely difficult in the traditional art world. And basically, he started following my wallet. And I think that probably over Twitter, is it via DM or just simply via a tweet, he, he told that uh, he found my collection somehow interesting. And we just started discussing like that. And, and one chit chat led to the other. And, and basically, because I was based in Paris by then and I traveled to New York a couple of times and he's living there. And basically we met and we discussed, we took some, some coffee and, uh, and voila. And so at some point I told him, Hey, I, I've got this project. I, I want to, to launch this kind of advisory and investment firm of digital art. And I think that you would be a great partner because you are extremely sophisticated, articulated, and, and, and you have this kind of equity research mindset. Um, that is extremely interesting in this nascent 
industry, nascent um, sector. And I think we could be extremely complementary. And so that's probably a proposal that I made last fall in October or something. And basically, we, then we started thinking of that. And obviously, we both had uh, our own business by then. And we decided to stop and to only work on that since then. That's awesome. That's great. And I do believe I've, I've done both. I've done team-based entrepreneurship and I've done solopreneurship. There's something to be said about being able to be in the room and with navigating the ups and downs. And obviously, you need a lot of trust. You need to have been able to navigate the hard times and the good times. And I think it, it lends a different set of eyes and perspective to what you're going through as an entrepreneur. So I'd say I'd probably lean towards having teammates in what I do and what I build, because especially if you achieve a combination where you have highly non-overlapping skills, I think that's one of the things where it's key. It's really a full alignment as to what ultimately is driving the founders, each individually and collectively, and then their ability to be complementary to one another, both in terms of their aspirations as well as their skill set, right? And so if you look, you've invested as an angel, and I invest as well. When I look at management teams across different stages, that is typically what I'm going to be looking for, right? Because inevitably, if you don't have that, then you're over allocating on a set of skills and you're missing out on others. So for example, founders that might be a little too geeky and too engineering driven, but don't have the go-to-market skills will tend to not do as well in terms of leading to a product market fit and leading to partnerships and being out there and creating relationships out there in the market, but they'll be very good at the product and vice versa. And then if the aspirations are very similar, you get into these situations where, hey, I should be the CEO or I should be the boss. And then no, I should be. And then you get into this competition. Some people work it out. You look at some companies, they're able to work it out, but usually it, it doesn't. Did you have also advisors and mentors as part of this experience? So you're starting a fund. So there's two aspects. There's the subject matter. I figure it's probably going to be hard to have people really know the space because it's a completely new space, but certainly in the more traditional art world. And then on the fund formation side and just about going about building a fund business, do you have advisors, do you have mentors that you can call up on and can help you navigate what you're going through right now? Totally. Actually, I will come on that in a minute, but I just wanted to add to what you just said before regarding the fact that building, being an entrepreneur is tough especially when it's a new industry and, and therefore having a partner or sometimes building a company with other people is actually extremely good, I think. And there's a French proverb that says that uh, alone you go fast and far, but together you go farther. And I totally believe in that. And sometimes I, I must say that over the past six months, we've seen that already and we provided support to each other when there was a moment of doubt or when there was a Stuff like that. And being alone is definitely not the solution. Now, coming back to the advisory side. Yes, again, what is really part of me is that I, I'm, I'm a constant learner and I know that I know very little. I know that I'm lucky enough to be in this new industry, which is brand new. So therefore, and because I was early, I'm lucky enough to be one of the person that knows the most, simply because I was there early. But I know that this sector will evolve extremely fast. And I will need people to continue to feed me and to make me better. And obviously, advisors are key to that. And as you extremely well nailed it, 
there is two components in the grail capital that project that is on one side the art component the art selection and the art coloration and on the other there is the asset management mostly alternative one approach and therefore that means that on those two elements we are indeed having some mentors so far it's mostly mentors that team and i have on the, our personal level that we will definitely set up a more advisory strategic committee i would say and but if i stay for now just at the advisor level i would say that the two there's one person that i can mention and one that i cannot on the art world i would say that there's a person that i like a lot who is called adam lindemann adam is a extremely knowledgeable and famous and successful gallerists and collectors of i would say traditional art if you google him you will find a lot of his sales i think he did sells at Christie's back in April in New York that was simply called Adam because he's so famous that the cell, he's got his own cell at Christie's and they just tell his first name, which says a lot. And he's a big collector, Basquiat, Warhol and Haring and, and so many great painters and traditional artists. And what I like with Adam is that he's extremely humble, even though he made already many, many great things as a collector and a gallerist. But he was extremely humble to come to me. It was probably a year and a half ago and he reached out to me and in his perfect French, because he's an American, but he studied at the Lycée Francais, so he's speaking a better French than myself. He asked me in French, I want to do a couple of exhibitions with this new thing that is NFT. And can you just tell me if I'm not wrong in the artist I'm deciding to curate? And guess what? The two artists that he came with was Justin Aversano, who is probably one of the best, one of the most famous and most successful NFT photographers, I would say, on one side. And on the other, he came with Eric Calderon, also known as Snowfro, who is the founder of uh, Artblocks and also the creators of the Chromie Squiggles, uh, who also happened to be iconic already. So it says a lot about him. And again, I, I trust him a lot. He's a kind of my mentor in the art world. There are others, but he's probably the key one. And on the financial alternative investment side, there's one person that I cannot quote for now because I don't know that, I'm not sure he wants to be disclosed as that, but he's a relatively successful hedge fund manager himself. He's committed also in the fund I'm launching right now. And I think he, he will probably play a, a special role in the years to come in this new Grail Capital partnership. That is fantastic to hear that you have those two pillars in both areas and something to also feel good about the project when you have these initial supporters and backers, people who believe, in French we say mécène, that are behind, behind the effort. So let's talk a little bit about the fund itself. It seems that we've described how the roles are split and the different skills that you both with your co-founder bring to the table. So when I look at a fund as an L, potential LP, right? Or if I were to start a fund, I think about three things. I think about thesis, I think about sourcing, and I think about process, right? We've outlined the thesis here. What I'd love to touch a little bit upon is sourcing and process, right? In process, there is the process by which you source you do deals, you deploy, right? You invest. And that varies, right? When you're buying companies, it's a little bit more involved. When you're buying art, it's probably a very different process. 
especially in the digital space. So love to understand your thoughts as to also there's a certain amount of social capital that you need to accumulate in order to be able to source the assets that you invest in, right? Some of it is going to be available online or through research. Some of it is just going to be your proprietary network and expertise. So walk us through how you actually source and you've named some artists. Like, how do you know those artists? Like, how would someone go about sourcing that? And that's really when I think about the pricing of the services that you provide, right? And I always say this, when you start a fund, the price at which you sell your services is kind of fixed. Like there's been an agreement that roughly it's going to be two and 20 or something like that, right? Whether it's hedge fund or private fund, right? So there is no discussion as to like getting cute or clever around the pricing. Where the differentiation occurs is as an investor, I have a choice between putting my money with you versus someone else, right? And so the reason I would put my money with you is because you have this thing that's tied again. Do you have the right thesis? Do you have the right sourcing? And do you have the right process? So let's talk about that a little bit. Totally. In terms of sourcing, I will try to split in two. And obviously, there was a, a kind of Coca-Cola recipe moment that I will not share too much. But uh, basically, there is one component which is extremely data-driven in the sense that we are really looking at this asset class as an asset class. And therefore, we are trying to find as much data as we can. And the good thing is that because it's NFT, everything is public. So you can find actually quite easily data points about an artist, about all the collections, all the one-on-ones, all the artworks basically that have been created by this artist. And you can also find the kind of on-chain characteristics, whether the rarity, whether the trading, whether the, the price, etc., etc. So there's already a lot of data points available. And therefore, our first mission in terms of sourcing was to first create a big database of all of those with a lot of quantitative data, but obviously adding a qualitative analysis of each and to basically come up with a kind of ranking. Let's call it like a top, a ranking like top 20, top 50, top 100, top whatever, that is mixing both the economic metrics, I would say, or the financial metrics or the trading volumes or or whatever on one side and the more cultural value on the other side. So that's the first offset. But obviously, you know, and that's actually, you could just stop there. I mean, technically speaking, you could say, okay, I built that. And because I'm behind my computer, I can just go on OpenSea, go on SuperRare, go on Foundation, go on FXH, go on all the platforms right now that are existing, which are like exchange somehow. And I just buy at the floor price, the Chromis Google 1234. Or I make a collection offer uh, blindly, or I reach out to one owner of uh, Fidenza and I, ask, I propose a price with a uh, wrapped ether and I get the deal or not. You could do that, and that could be okay. What we added to this is actually the kind of collector's DNA that I have and the kind of network and social capital that I build for the past three years, basically, which is I know. Uh, personally, and I met lots of the top uh, 20 artists in the NFT world. And the reason is simple. is because I was there when it was relatively small. I collected some of them before they became famous. Not everybody, you know, but some of them. And because they knew me, because we had some coffee together, sometimes some drinks or even dinner, actually, you know, I wouldn't say that we became friends, but we are good relatives. And obviously, having this kind of close relationship 
gives a big competitive advantage because then I can reach out to some of those artists. And if I want to make a deal, I can probably get the kind of an advantage in terms of access to their forthcoming artworks. Obviously, if we are talking about a big collection and a big drop like ACK a few weeks ago, I will not get a privilege because it's an auction and, and you get to bid. And if you don't raise your bid, you get outbid and that's done. But if we are talking about certain artworks that are more one-on-ones and that will be released more like at the discretion of the artist, it's quite a competitive advantage. So it's just like the big, big collectors of the traditional art world like Mr. Pino or Mr. Arnaud, they are used to visit Yoyo Ikuzama's workshop and they directly buy from her within her art workshop and they don't even go through a gallery or whatsoever to buy her artwork. It's a bit like that for me as well. So I think the privilege access to sourcing to artists is great. And to conclude on that, I would say that what is also of great interest is actually the artists themselves are probably the best collectors and they have extremely great tests. And sometimes they are actually leading me to the next big star because they are good and they recognize each other. And when a great artist tells me, this new person, you should really look into her heart or his art because it's great potential. Usually I listen because they are pretty right all the time, you know? So the thing that comes across here is this combination of science and the development of some proprietary network over time that accrues to the team, that accrues to the work, and it builds on itself, right? It's a graph theory effect to what you do. Now, what comes to mind, and you've touched a little bit on this, is what is your sense of capacity and how much capital can you reasonably deploy in this asset class at present? Because what comes with this high level of asymmetry between the physical market and the digital and that expansion that you're looking to capture over time is also the fact that it is very, very small. Yes, there is liquidity and you tout that liquidity in your materials, right? You do emphasize that these are actually more tradable assets than they are in the physical world. But at the same time, what is the true capacity here? If you're given, let's say, $500 million right now, can you go out and source all the assets that you deem are quality assets for your investors to hold? That's a great question. Thank you for asking, Maxime, because actually that's really what I started with when I had the idea. And actually the funny story is that Pascal Gauthier, who is the current CEO of Ledger and a good friend, a good friend of mine, and I was his partner for some time from a business perspective. And when I told him that I wanted to launch that new business, Pascal is a, has a very strong character and strong ambition for everything he's doing or everything people he knows are doing. And therefore he said, hey, I want, how much do you want to raise? And I said, you know, I will probably try to raise 20 million. And he said, but why not 100 million? And actually the, the answer I gave him is exactly the same as I'm going today is that the market right now could potentially get a fund of 100 million right now because we are talking again about an asset class that is around 6 billion. So that's okay. But still, I think that having too much capital to deploy right now compared to the market value could actually artificially somehow drive the price higher and that's not healthy and actually i've studied that because again i was in the market 2020 and 2021 and i saw during the what we call the summer of jpeg in july and august 2021 
I saw free AC, free arrows capital, that since then have been going down. But they started buying some, what I believe are, are great collections, like the Fidenzas and some Squiggles and probably some Punks, actually. But they were, because they had a lot of money at the time, they basically bought some relatively rare artworks at relatively high price um, that probably, because basically they wanted to have the piece and they were just bidding up to the point where the seller is eager to sell. I think that some of the price they paid at the time might have been a little bit too expensive. Eventually, I think the price that they paid will be right in the long term and people will laugh at that in probably five, 10 years and they will say, wow, Fidenza at 1 million euro, it's nothing. And they're probably right. But you know, at the time, I think they probably overpaid a little bit uh, what they collected. And they overpaid it because they could afford to overpay it. And I don't want to overpay things. I prefer to miss something and I prefer to do... Because I've got fiduciary duty towards my limited partners, I really want to be mindful of the money they, they somehow give us to collect and invest. And therefore, I prefer to be moderating that. So that's a very long answer. But the short answer is that I think that the 500 million fund right now in NFT would probably represent about 10% of the total market. And I think it would be dangerous for the market right now. So I, I'm betting that this kind of fund size will probably be okay three, four, five years from now, but but not right now. I don't think it would be healthy for the ecosystem to have that. That's a great qualifier and helpful, again, for listeners to kind of get a sense for how someone who's really, really deep in the space thinks about capacity, thinks about deployment. And the 3AC comment really brings a question, and the SEC has gone and against individuals here in the U.S. with respect to insider trading. When I think 3AC and buying at these very high levels, and really some of it, I hate to say it, sounds a lot like pump and dump, really in some form of market manipulation, right? That brings me to my next question is, how important is regulation with respect to the underlying assets? Obviously, we understand how funds are regulated, and there's a framework for that, especially with high net worth investors and the protections that come with those investors and the framework that you're probably building your fund with subject to the jurisdiction that you're starting it in. However, as far as the underlying assets, one of the big debates right now, especially in the US, we seem to be lagging on the regulatory front, right? There is no real clarity coming from the government, coming from the policymakers, coming from the regulatory agencies. There is sort of that status quo of saying, we've got a framework applied to traditional assets and we're applying it. What is your sense on the regulatory piece and how important is it for your thesis? Is it important at all? I could say that, you know, again, I've been at Ledger for six years, so between 2016 until 2023. And um, obviously, and coming from traditional finance, and, you know, I've always worked with assets that either regulated or non-regulated for, for the derivatives, for instance. But I know that regulation needs to be taking into consideration as soon as we are talking about financial instruments, underlying asset that happens to be a financial assets, like a security, for instance, or a commodity, if uh, voilà. And basically, as you probably know, and first and foremost, I'm not an expert in regulation, so I will be cautious of what I'm saying today because I don't have the latest development and I don't know everything about, about the regulation of NFTs per se. I know a little bit 
of the crypto assets, but more on, on the Bitcoin and ETH perspective. But not so, because I think the NFT is gray zone right now, at least in Europe, from what I've read and been advised about. Uh, so in Europe, for instance, I think the NFT is right now out of the scope of uh, Mika, which is the market infrastructure capital regulation for digital assets. It probably will be included at some point, but I think it will be a challenge because an NFT, even though technically speaking, it lies on the public blockchain and most of them right now are deriving from the Ethereum blockchain. It's a token on the public blockchain, but underlying value is not so much about the token per se, or I mean the Ethereum one, but it's more like the value that you put in the attached cultural media that is embedded in that NFT. That's what makes the non-fungibility extremely interesting, is that one token is not equal to the other. One token can be an X copy that happens to be worth half a million or more, and another one, still just the neighbor of the previous one, can be just me minting a picture of my cat, and that is worth absolutely nothing, even though my cat is very cute. So I think we will have some challenge, and regulators will have a challenge to see and regulate NFTs per se, because... If they regulate it as underlying technology assets, they would probably be trying to regulate it as Ethereum and, and the rest of the crypto assets. If they try to regulate it as an artistic and cultural artifact object, I think it will be also challenging because sometimes NFT can be more than simply an artwork. It can be a membership, there can be some stuff that are attached to that. So actually, it's probably not the right answer to your question, but I think the, the regulatory aspect needs to be considered. What I know right now is that from the European perspective, it's not set up yet. I know that in the US, it's uh, probably different, but not in Europe where, where I'm staying and where, where the fund will be incorporated, it's not the case. And I think we should be fine for a while. And I obviously, I'm coming from that industry and having uh, lots of friends in the industry and Monitoring that quite closely, I, I hope that I will be in position to understand ahead of potential regulation to NFTs, to acts, so that it's not bad for the investment. Now, thank you for this. And it's a highly complex topic. And at this stage, what it highlights is that the existing set of rules are just not sufficient. There are definitely parallels from a variety of different industries and trades However, I think it's going to require that policymakers, industry participants kind of collaborate ultimately if we want a framework that is sound and a set of rules that everyone understands. And so no expectation that there is a clear answer because the reality is there is no clear answer unless one actually sits down and does the work to create those definitions. How easy or how hard is it right now to fundraise for the business? I mean, we talked about regulation again here in the US, it seems anything that smells or sounds like crypto is, is highly toxic, right? Even if it's like 10% of a, I look at fintech a lot and anything that has to do with blockchain, crypto infrastructure, highly toxic. There's literally reputational risk attached to either buying a company or investing in a company. I think it creates amazing anomalies and opportunities that you could take advantage of. But the reality is from an LP fundraising standpoint as a GP, it's tough. How is it going for you? No, totally. I may say that the crypto component obviously has, is a bit of disturbing the approach and the eagerness, the willingness of the LPs to participate. 
at the same time, what I must say is that because we are talking about NFTs are a kind of new asset class on its own, even though, again, it, it is somehow, it is totally actually supported by crypto technology and public blockchain technology. In the end, it has its own trajectory, I would say. And because there is this artistic and cultural element attached to that, that is actually the main component of it. You can sometimes have, uh, some people are somehow forgetting that we are talking about, again, asset that is on the public blockchain and therefore the crypto toxic approach or, or current mood is somehow a little bit behind. Um, that being said, I would say that uh, caveat to that is that NFT art is relatively new. As an asset class, I would say that it's three years old. And therefore, that means that what is kind of most, the largest portion of pushback we can get from potential LPs is not much the crypto element, but much more the relatively lack of track record of this asset class. And basically, eventually that people can believe that it's not an asset class per se and that it will totally disappear in one, two, three years, four years. The crypto element is definitely giving some discount in the interest of LPs, but that's not the most important one. Maybe also because I've been quite picky and selective in the people I'm talking to and that I basically ask three questions to everybody that I talk to in the first meeting. First, do you like and do you collect art? B, do you believe in technology as a medium of progress in any industry it eventually gets into? And three, are you okay, intrigued, curious, or against crypto? And if I have a question, if I've got an answer that is yes to the first two and a third answer that is more like I'm between curious to okay with it, usually the, the rest of the conversation is pretty okay. And obviously, if there is one that is missing or if the person is collecting art, believe in technology, but dislike at the highest level crypto, obviously, it's not worth spending the time discussing about NFT art because that's about it, you know? No, I mean, it, it brings to an interesting point that you're making is KYC like or KYI, know your investors, you know, similar to sales is, and that's a tough part is trying to, as much as one can, qualify the audience ahead of time, right? Because you know that your conversion rates in the funnel are going to be higher, right? And that's a very tough thing to do from a fundraising perspective, right? It takes a lot of data, quite frankly, and that data is very opaque. It's very hard to obtain. And a lot of it is just building those ties and those proprietary networks. But ultimately, you know, if you're able to qualify the conversation to your point, right? And I can see that you have, there's a, a method, a rhyme and a method as to how you're approaching this in order to not just not waste your time, you know, talking to folks that wouldn't necessarily be interested. Something you said, it's bring me to the, what I'd like to, to be able to cover to complete this overview is what really you're looking at and what you're really excited about from the standpoint of those assets, right? Because again, I think that's truly the, the, the very interesting part of, of what you're doing and why people would entrust you with their money to go in and find that. It's thinking about the creation the valuation, the exchange of intangible value, which in theory is unlimited, right? I always like to think about Bernard Arnault and LVMH and the fact that 
they really are one of the most glaring examples of how you create value add, how you create intangible value and sustain that and keep expanding and growing that. Again, if we also look at what technology has done over the last few decades is if you take just a representative sample of companies like S&P 500, how much of the value now on those balance sheets is intangible, not tangible assets, not fixed assets. And so with blockchain, with digital assets and the NFT framework, you're essentially creating a much more structured way to allow people to discover, exchange, value, intangible value creation, right? So I love that. I think it's a very, very compelling and very powerful, and again, mathematically unlimited, right? Because an asset's going to be really worth what a group of people are assigning, the value that they're assigning to it, right? Irrespective of like, here's a stream of cash flows, and here's some discussion around a discount rate to bring us to a present value, Here, it's more about, well, what is our assessment of this asset in terms of how much credence, how much pleasure do we derive looking at it? How important is socially to be able to represent that I have this PFP, like all these social attributes and valuation criteria that we assign to it that are very different from, again, the standpoint of valuing a fixed income asset? Totally. I mean... You are totally right. And actually, that's also why we um trying to frame it as actually digital art and culture, the asset class that we are targeting and not only art. Because indeed, as you said, we are talking about something that is way beyond art only, and that is about brand. And maybe something that we didn't have the chance to discuss about, which is a kind of theory we built about what we call the artist entrepreneur. If you look at history of art, and let's take the example of Van Gogh on one side, Vincent Van Gogh, and let's take the example of Warhol, Andy Warhol. For me, Van Gogh is the perfect example of the artist artist. Extremely talented, nobody understands when he was alive. He sold just one piece, I think, to a restaurant owner when he was alive. And obviously, he became famous way, way after his death. But he was extremely advanced. He was very tortured somehow. He's a real artist, you know, very, very, very artist. And on the other side, you've got Warhol, who also have a lot of talent in creation. He was coming from the marketing and advertising, if not mistaken, before being a full-time artist. But beyond being an artist himself, he built a company around him. And he built, obviously, industrialized somehow his creation process with lithography, serigraphy, and, and many other things. But beyond his own creation, he also came along with the factory in New York, and he, he actually kind of built his own network and he came along with lots of artists that basically because of him and thanks to him started building their own heart and their own brands. I think that this artist entrepreneur like Warhol, we have the same and we have the same in the NFT world and we also have the, the same artist artist. And I think actually if you look at right now, for instance, someone like Eric Calderon, who is the founder of Artblocks and also the creator again of Chromie Squiggles is exactly like Warhol. He's both a creator of art and he's also a kind of entrepreneur and he built this art blocks that is now a powerhouse in the generative art in the NFT in the NFT world. So I'm also looking forward to actually collect both the artist artists like Van Gogh, but also the artist entrepreneur like Calderon or Warhol, because I think that both will create massive value, cultural value in the years to come, a bit differently 
one will create the value of his own collection, and the other will probably build some kind of brand or even a kind of company that will not take the shape of a formal company per se, but the brand and everything that will be built around creation will somehow almost take the shape of a stock or of a share, and people will want to get a share. People will want to have T-shirts with quiggles or any kind of artworks in 5, 10, 15 years, or they want to get a sneakers, or they want to get a cap, or they want to get a, a little serigraphy, digital serigraphy of those artworks. So I really believe that we'll have that, and I actually believe that it will probably, they will become so powerful and cultural and digital digital format will be so big because the fact that it's worldwide day one makes it much bigger than any kind of physical artwork because you don't need to be in a physical museum or represented by a gallerist in New York or London to exist. It's your playing field is the world and there is no barriers, there is no frontiers and everything you do can be actually much more in terms of, much bigger in terms of of supply, simply because the demand also is multiplied by 10 or 100 or even 1,000. So I think that we will really live a very interesting next 10 to 15 years because of NFT and because of digital art and culture, because the market size will actually expand the whole art and culture business, I think. What a wonderful way to close on this session. And I feel like there's so much more that we could keep discussing. I really look forward to doing so in the months to follow up. I've really enjoyed meeting. I think your thesis is very unique, especially in the way you're approaching it and this dichotomy that you mentioned about the artist, the true artists, and the people actually are have this innate ability to create brands that can become literally a global tribal sign that people latch onto and, and attach value to. I think it's very important. I mean, again, going back to LVMH, people walk around the world and they attach status and a symbol to owning a piece. People walk around the world and wear a Keith Haring t-shirt, right? These are global phenomenons and it just opens the door for so much potential. So I've truly enjoyed speaking about this with you. I think what you're building is exceptionally interesting. And I thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Maxim. Thank you very much for the great interview and looking forward to seeing you very soon in Paris or on New York. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.